Hey everyone, it is September 18th, 2016. This is Casey Cangelosi, and you're looking at episode 61 of At Percussion. Over there is Megan Arns. Hello. And Ben Charles. Hey, buddy. So, Ed Smith is a jazz vibraphonist and percussionist. He has performed with many distinguished artists, including John Cage, Glenn Velez, and Louis Belson. In 1992, he helped form the internationally recognized world percussion group De Drum. He's a professor of vibraphone at the University of North Texas, as well as the director of the Bowana Kumala Gamelan Ensemble. Did I say that right, Ed? Perfect. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, good. That's as, that's as good as that's going to get, I bet. Well, hey, well, <laughs> welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, that's my pleasure. It's an honor to be with you. I Wonderful. Say, sorry about the, the Gamelan name. For the longest time I heard it, and then one day I finally asked Ed, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and actually the name of our gamelan was given by one of my teachers, Neamon Winton, who's at the Cal Arts in Valencia. Uh-huh. And so he's the one who came with his wife to dedicate the gamelan in 2005. Eventually I'll get into a story about how all that came about in the first place. But uh, his, he wanted to name it uh, Jewel of the World. And so that's what Brian called Oh, wow. Cool. Huh. Very nice, very nice. Yeah. Kind of well, a lofty name, but that's kind of, that's kind of <laughs> how the Balinese are. So. Yes. <laughs> Hey, well, Ed, what are you what are you up to these uh, these days recently, and um, what's what have your days been like? Well, you know, we've kind of uh, got school going again, and I'm at three different universities. I'm actually at University of North Texas proudly, and uh, I teach jazz vibraphone, and I'm just not getting my my gamelan going, my Balinese gamelan. We're at SNU doing this podcast uh, because I play dance classes here Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I have a couple modern classes in the Martha Graham style, which I totally adore. It's one of my special things I do in my life. And I play piano for that. So I've been doing that for like 20, oh, wow. 25 years. And that's wow. taught me so much about phrasing and maybe we can get into that a little bit later. And then I also teach my very first gig I still have, which is a junior college in Lancaster, Texas, which is about 20 miles south of Dallas. So I still keep that gig. So I have three different schools because I'm not, I'm not junk at every place. You know. Okay. Sure. How far is SMU from UNT? So it's about 40 minutes. Denton okay. is uh, 40 minutes north. And SMU is, is smack dab in the middle of Dallas, and so I live six minutes from here. So that's why I live in Dallas, basically. And I, and I play jazz gigs around town, and also D-Drum goes out and does little tours and plays with orchestras. Some. Uh-huh. And uh, so I, I keep Dallas as my home. You you were saying earlier that Ben was a really difficult, obnoxious student. Can you tell oh. us a little more? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, he would come in. Usually, usually, he would just come in with one mallet. Yeah. Like, How can I teach this kid? And he goes, I'm going to buy another mallet next week. Uh-huh. And so, so it took four weeks, but finally we had four mallets. You know. Yeah. Ben is like. He was an inspiration to me when he'd be coming for lessons, too. You know? And I noticed him before because what was that first time or something I noticed? He did a solo on some piece before I oh, really knew uh, Yeah, it was um, the steps ahead to yeah. um, Beirut. Beirut. Yeah. So I first noticed him playing this, and it was a transcribed solo. Right? Yeah. But he made it sound like it wasn't transcribed. I guess it was Mike Maneri's solo, yeah. right? So I guess I kind of did remember, oh, yeah, that's kind of Mike Minnery's solo. But he did such a great job. So I look forward to when we finally got together in the Jeff Bio reference. But that's all we had. We only had one semester of Jeff yeah, yeah. right? So I, real quick, I want to tell my favorite. I have two favorite lesson stories to tell from North Texas. One oh. is the one I told about Bob Chitroma's lesson on Sweet Peas episode where he told me how bad I was. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, my favorite story was Ed has these like blues backing tracks he puts on the F, G, B flat, and C. Um, and so he had me playing like an F blues or something like that. And I, here I am playing in G major. And get to the end of it, and he goes, you realize that that was the F blues that you were playing in G the whole time ago? Oh, no, I didn't know that. And he goes, no, that's right, man, you were just getting far out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's playing extensions. He had these really crazy extensions of the chords. Like, oh, wow, that's what I was doing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You have these really cool videos, Ed, of you playing the love vibe. Oh, thank you. The way you treat that that mechanism, mm-hmm. I mean, it really changes the instrument. It, it has become a different instrument, and like the the pedaling process, which which is, I mean, just pedaling on the vibraphone is pretty scary to most member players, right? You know. Oh yeah. Right. I spend a lot of time in my lessons about uh, 
dealing with that screen. To me, I always tell my students, the screen is your friend. And you don't want to overpower that screen because it's really keeping you clean because it's pressing up against those bars. So I, I always teach at the beginning, uh, like, eighth notes, basically, in that pe when you're pedaling in eighth notes, that you, you're pressing five miles per hour, which is impossible to go five miles per hour on a car. So I said, well, that's, that's the touch I want for eighth notes, basically. And then a quarter note is 10 miles per hour. So they just barely, so then they start to get the feeling of that string that they're never overpowering. Because what I see a lot from students is that they initially just go all the way down to the floor yeah. on the pedal. And so I'm always trying to keep, always be in touch with that, it's a sort of a zen thing, to be in touch with that string and how the string is coming up. And you just barely instigate it for your benefit of pedaling. So that comes into play with the love vibe because you have to go further into the pedaling to trigger that mechanism that you were seeing on that pedal. You know, and so yeah. it's been a whole new system for me to learn. Because you got to pedal first just to open up the bars, then you go further to control the wow, 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 wow with your foot. Yeah, sure, sure. Is um, that's something I found so hard? It seems like, and and as you know, not a vibraphone specialist, it's very hard to teach. Can you can you half pedal? You know, it seems like it's either on or off. Yeah, I have, I have such a hard time trying to get students to just do. I like that description. You know, you're 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 doing 40 miles an hour. Can you do five? Exactly. <laughs> that's what, that's that, a really that good way to put it. That's what half pedal is to me. It's like five miles per hour. The bar, the dampening bar, is still touching the bar, but the bars have a little bit of a lot in that half pedal. So I'm a big fan of that. One thing like your bike has bikes in there when you're something. but the the dampening bar, uh, is not felt. It's silicone, uh -huh. and the felt get over time gets compressed and. I think honestly, on, on most vibes I've ever played, it's basically impossible to have pedal because of the the dampening bar doesn't. Right, the felt allow or whatever it. doesn't allow it. And plus, this um, uh, the love vibe, the Maltec love vibe, um, it has these uh, it has an extra wide dampening, pad. and then at the very end of the dampening pad, it goes up slightly up towards the bar. So that way, as you uh, as you uh, gradually bring up the dampening bar, you can gradually dead in the bar. So you actually have a uh, slow decay. You go bow with your foot. Hmm. So yeah. Is that, that, is that that's similar to that soft rubber squishy thing that's on the Piper vibe probably? And it's uh it's it's similar but this was uh well I haven't seen Piper's new version. I think there might be a new version, I don't know, but this is yeah, it's similar to that, but that one's a little bit loose compared to this. It's very, it's firm. It's very firm and very controllable, and it, and it lasts too. Which is cool. Cool. Is that is the Omega vibe similar to the Love vibe in any way? Did they? The Omega vibe is their uh, their uh, motor vibe. vibe. That's like a normal vibe, but what's different about it? It doesn't have rotors in the resonators. They they use that same slat. That goes over the bars. It's like one long uh, piece of uh, uh, some sort of what is that material? I can't remember. Uh, Lee's going to hit me for that. But um, and this one, he calls it a wing. And so I'm mean, controlling this slat going over the resonator back and forth. So the Omega has a version that's on a motor that goes around in a circle, and that creates a bow wow wow like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so now what I, the vibe I have now, they uh, we, they just delivered to me um, a portable love vibe that's on Omega frame. So the, it's very similar to Omega, but on the love vibe, uh, the, with this series, you can, it's more portable. Because okay. the, the vibe, like you had, Casey, are almost like Marimba, it's because they're like in nine pieces. Have, yeah, you ever, right. have you ever torn it down, the vibe? I, I haven't had to yet, no. I used to have, I used to gig with that instrument, like that. So every gig, I'm like, I'm like a Marimba, because it's like nine pieces, and but this new portable version is fantastic. My my favorite was when when Ed played a basic that Neptune performance. He said, "I've got the greatest vibraphone tech in the world because Lee was tuning his vibraphone. <laughs> <laughs> he was tuning the resonators, you know. And cause that's the great thing about the vibraphone. It does have uh, tunable resonators, which are beautiful for vibraphone, even more so than marimba. Yeah, because you can really work with the sustain or the fullness of the note. You can really fine tune it. And so Lee noticed that uh, the the white notes were. They had a nice resonation all the way up and down, but he noticed that the uh, black notes were uh, they weren't so well tuned. I said, "Well, it's kind of hard to go around the other side of the instrument." So that's what Lee was uh, tuning that day at Tulsa. It's pretty funny. 
Wow. You know, an integral part of this piece I mentioned earlier, um, it has you know, has this rhythmic vibrato, so mm-hmm. the, the it's a really key part of it, and then at the end it, it, it speeds up with this really, really cool ending effect. Um, but I was, it was, I was thinking, you know, with, the, with that pedal, man, there's so many new compositional options. Exactly. You can yeah. do the variants in, like, even just one chord. Uh, it, or even, like, as a jazz player, you can uh, play a line, and then, like a saxophone player or a vocalist, at the end of the line, you go bow, wow, 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 instead of yeah. the vibrato going all which I've never been a big, big vibraphone, I mean, a vibrato player. I always mm-hmm. went straight. I'm sort of like a Gary Burton disciple, you know. But then when I came across in contact with this in 2008, uh, I, mean, I, th- I saw new possibilities. Yeah. yeah. Sure, because we've been talking about it so much. It's literally sitting right next to us. <laughs> okay, so... Let's show uh, the people. Why don't you just show us like some of the pedals type stuff okay. you're talking about? And maybe you might want to see how the, the me- mechanism... You can see this little movements. Yeah. That's, that's the wing, right? So I control that with the same pedal that controls the back of the Another technique I love about this is to do just do swells. Just the volume of that I just love. I use that a lot of my It's really cool. How? Yeah, sure. So this is how it's going to work. I don't know if you can see with this cable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On up. So it's it's slack, and then as you just press first, you can open up the bar. And then as you go further, then that cable instigates, and that's what makes the wings go over the resonators. Real fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a friend needs to be on coffee or something. Yeah. I, I think we can't let this secret get out because all those really hard 20th century avant garde vibraphone solos like Vibra Lufa and Omar and the Gita Steiner, those pieces are going to be way harder if they have real specific. That's true. Yeah. I am in the process of working on uh, finally. Um, writing out Neptune. I've never written it out. It's all composed in my head. But uh, again, Lee really wants this thing published. So, And, yeah. and I'm grappling with the, the whole process of uh, having another smaller little staff underneath the big staff to show the foot, to show yeah. the, what the foot does, which is going to be good because I can show it actually time relating to the notes rhythmically. I can show how fast I want you to do your foot. Or here, the foot is totally down to the ground to make the chord swells and stuff. Absolutely. I haven't completed it yet. When you put a piece together, like a similar kind of notation on the box. Yeah, for the Adagio. Yeah, I I did do that just to show the notation I was thinking about. And there's other composers out there who have done this, and I cannot name them at the moment. But there are a few uh, Love Vibe compositions that have a separate little foot score that shows you how to manipulate the Yeah, I feel like I saw one of those recently. I cannot remember the name of the Do you, but, think, do you yeah. think all those indications can be done with traditional uh, pedaling symbols? Or do you think it needs there needs to be something in addition to that? Um, like, what do you mean? Uh, well, like I, like I guess, uh, could you just have a line underneath and just show how much pedal you're supposed to use, how much pedal you're not supposed to use, and um, or would you need to invent well, something, like something new? Pedal. I got you. Um, you know, there's a possibility of that. I still think you might get kind of lost about how high it is or whatever. That's why I was just trying to find a pedal. Yeah, obviously, it's kind of two pedals in one because you have a damper pedal and then you have the the vibrato pedal exactly. basically combined into one. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that would be the. I don't think you could really combine it into one line, so it's very well. But okay. I have thought about that, Casey. I had thought about just using the pedal line and maybe dipping it down. I had thought about that, but I haven't really put it into practice yet. It's a possibility. But right now, what I'm working with is 
normal pedaling, flying, and then there's a little score underneath it. It makes the part really busy. I'm not real happy about it. You know? <laughs> I give up. I haven't published the piece yet. You know? I have all the notes are on paper. It's just a matter of completing this pedal score. Well, you know, Ben has tons of time on his hands. I bet he'd be happy to. <laughs> yeah. I, he's your student. I mean, your student should really be, you know, rising to the occasion. I bet he'd be thrilled oh, to do this for you. Ten thousand dollars. <laughs> no, I mean, he Ben has that. edited a lot of Casey's music, so I mean, he has a lot of experience. He's going to be doing that very soon too. Yeah, considering how much he gets paid to do the podcast, I think he'd be happy to, to do it. <laughs> he doesn't retire pretty soon with all the money you're making. <laughs> Oh, it's oh, it's insane! See all this, see all this, this clothes I'm wearing. It's yeah, uh, see. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We're just we're just raking it in. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about. Um, I hate to put it this simply, the other half of you, <laughs> which <laughs> at least at least on the at least on the faculty profile, the other half of you is the uh, the gamelon, mm-hmm. and we have a we have a nice uh, question from Facebook here from Mason, and Mason asks. How did you first get interested in Gamelon and decide to bring it to UNT? And, and Mason is one of my ex-students, so hello Mason. Um, this is a, I love this little story about my involvement in Gamelon. Uh, my dear uh, friend, who also is in the drum, he's really the one who started the drum, Ron Snyder, introduced me to um, Bonnie's Gamelon when I was 26 years old through a record on the non-such label. Do you guys we call the non-such yeah. record, which is, that was the introducing uh, music from around the world to me. Yeah. And so one night in one of our late night listening sessions, he brought out the uh, Ujjan Maas, the Golden Rain record, very famous old record of Bali's Gamelon. And it's the first time I ever heard it. And it, it, it just overcame me, the sound of spectacular metal sounds, and I couldn't envision that there's no video. I couldn't figure out how this music was being played. It was just a shimmer of sound and very fast stuff. And I was took pride in the fact that at this time I'm transcribing a bunch of solos. You know, I, was, I think I thought I was figuring out music, but I could not figure that out. So that night, and I know I made a, a pledge to myself that someday when I have the uh, the means and the time, I'm going to go to Bali. So I set a goal then at 26, and then it wasn't until uh, when I got into my 40s when I finally had some money to play around with. And so uh, Ron had already gone the year before me. And we already had a connection there. And then I decided to go to Bali in 1995. Uh, right before that, I came across this beautiful book by Michael Timson. It was uh, at the University of uh, what's it? in uh, Vancouver. Is it University of Vancouver? Maybe. Is it okay. anyway, I'm not sure. He teaches gamelan there. He's to me one of the the great gamelan minds in the Western world. He's written a couple of books on the subject matter. And this was just music in Bali. Or Balinese music, excuse me. And um, a month before I go to Bali, I find out about this instrument called the Gande Rayon, which is the shadow puppetry instrument. And all you need to do to, to have the music come back to America is to study just uh, two parts, the polos and the songsi, and you have the complete music. Instead of like this large Balinese gamelan, you, you need you know many parts and you need many instruments if you study John Kabyar. But... I finally realized a month before I'm going that I can actually study shadow puppetry, even though I thought it was the hardest instrument there, because you're playing the interlocking part, the filtecking in your right hand, and you're dampening with your, the back of your hand. Mm-hmm. And then the left hand plays the simpler, slower melody. And, but you only need two players to play all of this stuff. So when I hit Bali, uh, and went to my connection, I told him I'm going to study Gendo Rayong, and he looked at me a little funny at first, but it seems like a strange thing for a Westerner to start studying first because it's so hard. They think it's hard. For a, a Western person, it's not because you, you're used to playing counterpoint anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't scared of that, of playing counterpoint, but it was a matter of the dampening, which really did, really did kind of beat me in the back sometimes. <laughs> but so that's how I kind of got into it. For, so for five years, I, every summer I'd go back to Bali and study Gende Rayon. And I got involved with shadow puppetry and played a cremation ceremony with my teacher one time, which is one of the marvelous events. And uh, and brought back an instrument immediately, so Ron and I could start learning to play this music. So here's the side of the story. You went there for five years, and you didn't introduce him to the vibraphone pedal. No, <laughs> I talked about it. They were really freaked out about what you stopped it with your foot. I said, yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, real quick, what is what is shadow puppetry? 
What is shadow puppetry? I mean, I assume it's, it's puppets and shadow art. Oh, um, yes. I wish I'd got one of my shadow I'm not sure I know what it is with Gamelon. Shadow puppetry, uh, they make uh, out of basically like leather, like a cowhide, and they perforate, and they, they'll make characters that look like, uh, you know, uh, any kind of um, Hindu god, you know, and so, uh, and then it's perforated, and with beautiful designs, they have these different kind of hammers that they can pound into this cowhide. So they had different little bitty designs, and then the torch light would go through that and shine the shadow on the screen. Okay. So the puppeteer, or his name is or he's called Dalong, uh, sits uh, right behind a huge kerosene lamp that has a flame about that about that high, and then uh, and he has a microphone right there that he sings into, and then he's manipulating these puppets, and then there's a four-piece gamelan behind him playing, and it's like a three or four-hour-long show. Just, and, it, and usually it's just stories from the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Those are Hindu epics that they... And this is, it was like their television or their movie house forever and ever and ever. So this music backs that up. So anyway, uh, Eugene Fong, uh, we, who we had interviewed earlier, she was a doctoral student at the University of Texas. So um, I started teaching her Gender Ramayana for one of her performances. It's also a great excuse for me to have her cook for me. You know, that's how she paid for her lessons. I got this great <laughs> cooking. Thank you, Ejen. And then, uh, so, um, so at one of her performances in 2003, or maybe 2004, uh, we were about to go in for dress rehearsal, and then I come across Stephen Friedson, who's the ethnomusicology head at North University of North Texas. And I said, hey, we're about to play some Gender Royale. I bet you would love to hear this. And he said, for sure. So he walked in, and we ran through this beautiful Gender piece. And, and after that, he said, man, we have to have some of that. So six months later, he came up with $16,000 and bought me the gamble. Wow, that's cool. So, that's, so out of nowhere, from seeing him in the hallway, six months later, I had the gamble on to go pick up the dollar. <laughs> So huh. I was always always in something for that because that totally changed my life. Because then I had to learn that repertoire. Because up until then, up until 2003, I only knew shadow puppetry music, the end of the hmm. Then I had to do a quick study on uh, Don Kegel, which is, you all know, is pretty intense. <laughs> huh. Wow. So that's wow. how I got to UMP. Did I answer that question right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. And then <laughs> since then, I mean, you've done, I know the game has done some... Uh, I guess you'd say traditional compositions, but also like you've written some for it, yeah. especially your uh, Pollock piece recently. Yes, I love uh, writing for the Gamelon, and uh, I wrote a piece for Shriji, Shriji and I, Shriji, uh, you could, uh, talked to him recently, right? We did a piece together, and then I, and, uh, I wrote a piece that featured him. So, and then I started using the Indian aspects of using a uh, high and also just playing in different odd meters, which Balinese don't necessarily do, even though today in the modern composition they are starting to experiment with that. And then recently I did a composition based off the Jackson Pollock exhibit that was at the DMA here in Dallas, and which is quite fun just to use imagery of Pollock and trying to make it into a gamelan piece. In fact, my first note for the title it was Pollock and Payload. And, so, uh-huh. and then the song just went, awesome. and I wrote it in 7 8 and 7 4 because it was. There were seven letters in Jackson and seven letters in Pollock. So yeah. I already had sort of this stuff working for me. So it almost wrote itself. It's, it seems very easy to imagine, you know, what a great way to, to, to paint a, a Pollock would be with a gamelan. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think mean, just the expanse of it and the, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The of sound and the yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like what you said about, you know, when you were first introduced to it, it was just very overwhelming, all the new sounds. And, and I, I remember being, I guess... Uh, either either late high school or early college, I saw you know my first Gamelon just video and recording, yeah. and yeah, just being really blown away, especially by the one hand muting and the just the unison rhythm and mm-hmm. you know, just how are they doing that without reading music, you know? Exactly. Just the discipline, and it's, I was amazed. Well, that's what I was going to ask Ed about your your compositions. Um, do you? engrave them or do you teach yes. them all you do engrave all I of do them? Engrave. in fact I engraved all of my Balinese music too okay and I learned in that, uh, when I'm in Bali to study I find it easier and luckily all my teachers would, teachers would allow me to videotape the lesson so yes. then after each lesson I could go a little bit further and I could actually transcribe it into Western notation and I use Colin uh, 
Colin McPhee's earlier engraving from his great book, Music in Bali. And he basically tried to approximate the pitch. But basically, you look at you know five pitches on a stack, and you can look at them, look at them as numbers, which is what most gamelan is, one, two, three, four, five. Right. And actually, you can see close approximately a pitch. And so, um, so that's what, that way I would go to my lessons, and then I would actually be looking down to, on the ground, reading music. And then that way I could go further, my teacher could take me further, because I wasn't, because my byrope mind, byrope ear, it's not that great. I mean, for a jazzer, I, I guess I do okay. But compared to the Balinese, their byrope memory is so much more uh, developed than ours. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the thing that blows me away is after UNT, when I went to grad school at Illinois, I studied with Kakas Nawa, and uh, here's a guy straight, you know, straight out of Bali that can play literally all the parts of Gun Kevyar from either side of the instrument. Right. So he would walk up and teach us our part from the wrong side of the instrument, and then like, you know, it's like I'm diving on the wrong side. And I've actually practiced that, so that's what I teach now. I definitely, I still try and teach by rope, but they're going to have music also. But I have learned, I practice doing that backwards, yeah. which is really fun. And then, like, uh, I there was a guy, Zach, that kept having trouble with it. And he went, oh, Zach, the music always leaves your head. <laughs> Zach's like, that's not that good, sorry. <laughs> And, and what is the, could you name the scholar you were referring to earlier again that he, we were talking about Vancouver? University of Vancouver? Michael Tenzer, yeah. University of British Columbia. Oh, British Columbia. Vancouver campus, yeah. And he's written two great books. Like I said, Bali, yeah. and then also uh, 20th Century Gone Kedjar, something like that. I have a better memory, but um, he's a really great scholar. And uh, one of my younger teachers in Bali, Sudi, uh, went and got his master's in Vancouver with Michael. And he was like the right-hand man, and huh. it's quite exciting. Yeah. And so when you said that you brought um, brought a gamelan to UNT, um, how, like, how... How were you able to sustain this over the years? Like, did this eventually become a part of the curriculum and the school would pay for it? Or, like, as someone who studied gamelan and wanted to bring that to a school, like, what was your process? Well, Financially, I guess. I was lucky because of Stephen Friesen finding this money. That, uh, so they were able to purchase the gamelan and we just developed an ensemble, just like any other kind of percussion ensemble, because North Texas does have many world ensembles, like an African right. ensemble, and then a Brazilian. enough students to yeah. staff them, so to speak. You have, right. you have 130 percussion majors. There. Right. So, so you can have that many without repeating. And then you have all the other orchestral ensembles and stuff. So we basically just, just developed it as a, another percussion ensemble. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and, and so I can, uh, we only had time to learn two songs each semester. So and then, so I have enough material that I can teach Balinese and uh, traditional Balinese, but to stretch it out, I started composing for it. So I, I try to do one original composition. And I've had students write for the ensemble also. And again, I teach them how to, to engrave it because it's, it's easier for the kiddos to like actually look up pictures. Even though this past year, I went ahead, I went ahead and tried to teach totally by rope for the first time. Uh -huh. And so uh, it was really hard on the kids, and I think I sort of a kind of badass teacher. I, I don't know, I don't like to be an angry teacher or anything, but I, I was hard on the kid I was there because I was, I was nervous about teaching this way, but I wanted them to learn this way. Yeah. And it was also good for me to be sure to be able to play both polos and songsi uh, in, in the gongza parts. And so that was good for me to have this deep down in my body because I want this in, in my body. Sometimes when, I, when I've engraved so much music, I, I don't recall it. I don't remember. I'm it's sort there of on the page. It's, it's there on the page. Necessarily. Yeah. So I'm embarrassed about that in a way, but it's just sort of what I'm in. I'm in a Western world, you know, and so I right. adapt that. Right. And I, you said that the Balinese have such a more developed um, capacity for memorization. And I, yeah, it's I wonder if it's just part of the learning system and... It starts early because, you know, he's teaching gamelan when they're four or five years old. I mean, in, you'll watch gamelan rehearsals of the adults, but then the children are in their laps. Like, I love watching kendang players, the drummers, and there's a baby right there playing, you know, and they learn it fast. And so, yeah. yeah. And I think it's also probably in some of their other educational processes, you know. 
Yeah. It must have to do something with the, I'm, I'm sure there's a specific scientific reason for this, but you, know, you think of dancers and what they memorize and how quickly they memorize right. dance. So, uh, so you know, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just speculating, you know, but uh, you know, they're familiar with that language. I also think of, say, marching band students. They learn a new show every week and they memorize it. And, not every week, every, every uh, game. You know, and they memorize that, but I, I bet they would struggle with something as different as gamelan, or maybe I bet a dancer would struggle with something as different as music. You know, uh, again, totally speculating. <laughs> well, you know, I'm being part of that goes on. Being a part of uh, the SMU dance department, you know, I see all kinds of vocabulary going down. It's all visual for them, and they have to retain these things uh, within counting. You know, they, usually dancers are counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or whatever. And then in the Martha Graham style, they get into all kinds of odd counts, up to 13, 25, whatever. And but they, yeah, their bi-rep system in dancers is really, I think, very good. I guess and that's one reason why I like being around them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Martha Graham is the famous uh, avant-garde modernist, uh, yes. like like kind of the the mother of modern dance, right? Totally right. In, okay. in the 30s and 40s, you know, that's when she was really coming up. Extremely strong woman figure man. during this time where it's all men doing this stuff you know and and, and then you know Aaron Culkin wrote uh, Appalachian Spring for her it was actually originally titled a ballet for Martha and then Martha actually changed it to Appalachian Spring and I was very fortunate this past semester SNU performed the actual ballet for the first time and it was the first time I got to see the actual dance to one of the most one of my more favorite pieces of all time is Appalachian Spring. Yeah, sure. So I, wow. so I finally got to uh, embed this beautiful ballet with this gorgeous music that, that about four times during the piece makes me cry. Every yeah, sure. Today, you know. And, and so I actually wrote a, a jazz tune just recently. Because, uh, you know, at the, at the end of Appalachian Spring, there's that beautiful hymn that, that Aaron wrote. And it's sort of polytonality in a way, a couple of slash chords, very jazzy. So I wanted to I wanted to have that in my body. So I learned it one day, and then then I heard something in front of that. Maybe I should put this in front of it. So I wrote a little thing about twenty bars in front of it. Then I go to that, do that hymn, but in sort of a faster three, and then I end with another thing. So just to make sure I don't feel too guilty about stealing from Aaron Copeland, I named it uh, Martha and Aaron. Yeah. Uh. Hopefully that's okay with the universe. Please, please. But, but I kind of like doing that. I like kind of stealing a little bit from an artist, you know, mm -hmm. and hopefully give them credit, but then to uh, expand upon it. That's, that's how I've always done my whole life. You know, I, find the best, I, I find the best way to do it is uh, you throw them off the track a little bit, throw them off the sentence, say, you know, homage to Bernstein, but really you stole from Copeland. Yeah, <laughs> and then they'll they'll dig in Where the wrong place. Where is it? Place. I can't find the influence. I can't yeah, find that, it. I just don't understand. It, it must be original. <laughs> hey, well, speaking of Gamelon, Megan, you were going to tell us about a, a, a all-female Gamelon group, is that right? Well, yeah, I just wanted to, I came across something last semester when I was preparing a lecture for a group, uh, for like a band fraternity. Um, they had asked me to speak on something, and I was kind of searching for a topic, and I ended up speaking on, on the role of women in several different world culture traditions that I had been exposed to. And one of those that I came across was something called Gamelon Juanita. Have you heard of this before, Ed? Um, and the only research I found on it is um, a piece called Gamelon Juanita, a study of women's Gamelon in Bali, written by Emiko Saraswati Sosilo from 2003. And I haven't read the whole thing. I would like to, but it's available online. I just wanted to read a couple excerpts from it. Um, until recently, Balinese gamelan was the exclusive domain of men. Within the last half century, however, Balinese women have begun to play gamelan and form gamelan groups. The rapid expansion of women's gamelan in Bali, or gamelan Juanita, and its impl implications for social change are not significant only to Balinese women, to, but to Balinese society generally. And if the momentum of these groups continue, there is the possibility that the solidarity we find growing in Gamelon Juanita may encourage more women to study Gamelon and perhaps even to consider forming groups focused on other causes. However, the ominous political and economic situation of Indonesia make it increasingly difficult to predict what the future of women's Gamelon will be. 
If Bali's tremendous economic prosperity allowed women more opportunities to spend time playing music, then economic collapse is a particularly harsh test for women's gamelan. And I'm not sure of the outcome of this, but um, one other thing that is noted is that in addition to the economic crisis, the world of gamelan Juanita faces the el elimination of the Gong Juanita competitions at the Bali Arts Festival in 1998. Mm -hmm. So I, I was interested in this, and I found a couple of interesting videos online and Ed I was curious what your um, experience with especially like traveling with EGEN I'm assuming um, and if there's if you ever have seen one of these Gamelan Juanita groups and what the status is in Bali with that. Yes uh, I've, we saw quite a few women through the years I've seen quite a few women Gamelans and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, whenever, whenever I saw them they seemed to be well respected you know and uh, there was no problems. They were sometimes maybe not as proficient as uh, maybe uh, an older men's gallon, whatever. Uh -huh. But the, I thought the music was rather sweet, and uh, yeah, it's very lovely. Yeah, and the, the kind of the theme that I found in a couple of different traditions I presented on was just this using music as a tool of so, social empowerment. You know, like mm -hmm. this is possible. We can do this, and making a statement and. Yeah, so I thought that was really beautiful, and I'm hoping that yeah. that's still yeah, I think you might have talked about before, who's the, I can't remember her name, Valerie Naranjo, that does the yes. drill. It's like a, sounds like a very similar thing to me. Yeah, yeah, she was the first woman to be able to play, perform drill publicly in Ghana. Yeah. And that kind of opened the door for other women to be able to, do, other Ghanaian women to be able to do that, where that wasn't, it was just a law that that wasn't socially appropriate for women to be performing this music, this sac often sacred music. In public, so I'm so proud of Valerie. I mean, she's become my friend through yeah. and she's actually played in my gamelan. She when she came to be guest artist at UNT. She wanted to play in every ensemble. So she no went, way. She, yeah, she played drums, she played djembe, and then and then I transcribed. Um, she gave me some music of one of her jilty pieces, and then I I kind of made up some interlocking in the gamelan, and we performed together. That's so and, cool. And I'm man, I think she's my she, hero. She's an amazing woman. I, and I just turned one of my students on to her recently. And she was so giving that she let her stay at her house up in Harlem, mm -hmm. right? And uh, and she studied with her all weekend. And now Shelby is in New York now. Oh, She's, I met Shelby. I met you. Oh, Shelby. Yeah, she was in the World Percussion Group, right, with Maraca too? Yeah. yeah, she came here. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Lovely. So she lives in New York now, and she's studying. She's her husband just moved to New York because her husband. Okay. They found it. They just made a point. We're going to go to New York, and so they found he found a job, and she's working on getting her scene happening too. And That's awesome. I'm so proud of them, and she can hang out with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> when was when was that? Um, I want to say this was about five years ago. Because I remember when I was there, we had Emil Richards come. Yeah. And he was like, I want to see the Gamelon. Like, it was like his highlight of the trip was seeing the Gamelon perform. And um, did, I see, did he see it? I mean, yeah, yes. yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, and I remember he played in the combo with, uh, with Ed Soap on that same concert. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, so when I met him, I was wearing my dress. <laughs> the, uh, so the I think when I met you, same thing, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> And one more question about um, composing that I had from before when you're talking about your arrangements um, and something that I wonder if a lot of people don't know, but in, in Gamelan Gang Kebyar, the genre is is still moving forward. I mean, people are composing for it. It's not just tr a traditional music that has existed for hundreds of years. It's actually a newer genre. Um, and so, yeah, I think often we think of Balinese music as this traditional music when actually it's something that is constantly expanding. Have you worked with any of the, I'm sure you have, but any of the top Balinese composers when you're over there about composition? Um, you know, I really, they were, I, I just observed new compositions being put. I didn't really study how to do new composition because uh -huh. I, I, was, I felt like I was a 12-year-old kid, even though I was like in my late 50s, you know, sure. Gamelon. And, uh, and I feel like I'm an old kid, which I do. I still feel like I'm 21 years old. Is that a kid? I don't know. But, uh, and so I was just working on just uh, the traditional material. So I didn't right. really start my sort of modern composition until I'm kind of just set here. Yeah. That would be something I would love to do someday. Yeah. 
And but the process of composition that you mentioned that you kind of witnessed happening, what um, were are these pieces kind of all written um, just by you know, is it in their head and then it's coming out, and, yeah. or is it is it is the entire composition in their head and then they teach it to the gamelan, or is it kind of a fluid process during rehearsal? What I noticed about my younger teacher, Sudi, and this is like in 2005, 2004 and 2005, um, he, he was making notes uh, in sort of Sanskrit about yeah. his notes. He knew what kind of notes were, and there was really no rhythm. And he wanted to learn the Western notation. He saw what I was doing in my transcriptions. He yes. really wanted to learn that. So I think eventually when he did study uh, with Michael, he eventually mm -hmm. learned that. But what he was doing is he was writing out the pictures, and, and he would group them visually on a paper that would remind him of the rhythmic form. Mm -hmm. you know? so, and, and I saw him after rehearsal, then he started adding more to it. So I think he was writing it as it was going along, as his new, he could hear his ideas. He, you know, uh, then he would expand it from there. I don't think he ever wrote an entire piece uh, straight through without hearing it first. This is my view on it. Yeah. But he wrote uh, for Bellad and Joy, which is a traveling orchestra. Yeah. Which I think is a fast, fast, well, you, do, you work with my Yeah, that's uh, his, his, his area. Yeah. I love his book, too. His book was a mm -hmm. big one. In fact, I didn't study uh, uh, Bellad and Joy in Bali, but when we, our very first concert when Neil Monmouth came to Christian Iron Instruments, uh, I needed a Belligan Jewelry. So I stole some ideas from Michael. <laughs> awesome. So I, I love that book of his. I mean, he's very straightforward, and that's how we yeah. develop our Belligan Jewelry. Then from that, I actually wrote a little bit to it eventually, you know, but I used Michael as my basis. So the, the Belligan Jewelry they're talking about is like a parade style music? Is yeah, it's a traveling orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it uses, uh, I don't want to say different instruments from Don Kedgar, but definitely, you know, smaller things that you can hold and all. Yeah, basically, they're and, using their yeah. rayon, the way on, the, the knob gone. Yeah, well, and then the ching-ching, too, right? Which yeah, are, that's different, the cymbals. Yeah, yeah like tiny little cymbals, and then I, I remember when I played, I had played those, and those are so tiring. And it's like, chit 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 over and over and over. It's, yeah. It's Imagine exhausting. Imagine playing track four for like an hour straight. That's yeah, right? That's right, and then uh, they actually use the bell of It's really loud sometimes, like in the cremation ceremony. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that, that's what's taking the uh, uh, the bodies to the cremation where they're about to be burned. And uh, and they they use this really loud system to scare away, uh, like actually to scare away the souls. Like if the souls of the Balinese are still longing for their body, they're using the bell of to scare them away to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow, very very cool. Well, hey. You know, in your bio, you've you've worked with some really interesting people. One of them being John Cage, and I think Ben's going to tell us a little bit about John Cage. But uh, maybe maybe to to start him off, can you tell us just a little, maybe just what it was like working with John Cage, or or when yes. that was? Well, I was like I was very young. I was 20 years old, and I was at, actually at a junior college called Eastfield Junior College. I only did two years of school. I dropped out. Don't tell anybody. About it. <laughs> I just had blinders on. I just wanted to be a player. But yeah, no one watches these things. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the University of North Texas. But what? He doesn't have a degree. But um, anyway, uh, uh, so we had this music festival every year at this junior college. So the first year was Morton Sabotnik. And then the second year, uh, my teacher said, well, we're bringing in John Cage. I didn't know who John Cage was. I'm so embarrassed. At that time, I did not know. So I did a quick study on him before he came and realized, oh, my gosh. I was so inspired just by his philosophy. So when I first met him, I was first just drawn to his childlike nature. It, 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 it was captivating about how he's very similar to a child, but also very intelligent. He knew so much about so many things, and he was so open. And his laugh, I still remember his laugh. Man, he would just be this glorious open laugh in them. He taught me a lot of things uh, about being open. Uh, 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 he told me one time, because we got to hang out every night after performances and stuff, and he, he, he's talking about trying to listen to a, a friend's composition up in New York, and uh, he says he wasn't really enjoying the composition until he, he started watching a curtain moving in the wind in the room. And, and then so once he started seeing this chance operation of this curtain moving against this music, he said, then I started to really enjoy this piece of music. And I, I mean, as a young kid from Texas, I never thought of anything being so separate. That could have such such meaning, and so that that one little 
paragraph change my life. Wow. Wow, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, ben, do you want to give us the official report? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do a little book report if you will on John Cage. Right. <laughs> so everybody, you can That's tune it. out. It's Ben's yeah. thing. Before I do the little report in there, I want to say this is basically part one going up to about 1950. I don't know when part two will come, but I, I started reading so much and getting so into it that I realized we'd be here for hours if I tried to do all of John Cage. So we'll call it John Cage part one. Um, but yeah, yeah. was was born September 5th, 1912 in Los Angeles, California. Uh, his father was an inventor, and uh, his father seemed like an interesting figure as well. One of the kind of anecdotes I read was that his father invented the design for a diesel-powered submarine. And oh. if you think about it, a diesel-powered submarine has exhaust, so it's going to release bubbles. <laughs> and... It, Apparently his father didn't see the problem in having a submarine that basically, you know, gave a trail of where it was at all times, but it didn't go over very well. <laughs> um, but anyway, his, his father told him at a young age, if someone says can't, that shows you what to do. Um, so that, if you know anything about John Cage, probably kind of carried out to it the rest of his life. He started studying piano when he was in fourth grade, which is kind of his first formal music study. Um, and his teacher said that he wasn't interested in virtuosity or building up technique. What he was really interested in was going through sight reading, just getting through a lot of material. Um, and he wasn't even really interested in composing at that time. He just enjoyed quickly going through material. Um, he graduated high school of his, uh, sorry, valedictorian of his high school class in 1928. Um, and his initial intention was to become a writer. Um, and he had given an award-winning speech at the Hollywood Bowl proposing a day of quiet for all Americans uh, so, so that we could hear what other people think, um, which is kind of a predecessor to his composition that most of us are familiar with. He enrolled at Pomona College as a theology major uh, upon graduating high school, and he was there for, I think, two years, maybe just one. Um, but basically he said there was an assignment for one of his classes that had to write a book report or something like that, and he went to the library, and everyone was reading the same book to do this assignment. And so he went to the books and got the first book with an author with a last name that started with Z. Uh, and he wrote his report on it, and he received the highest grade in the class. And he said that at that point, he left the institution because he was conceived it was being run incorrectly. Um, so his parent, he, he persuaded his parents to allow him to go to Europe to study. He said that would be more beneficial than college. And they obliged, so he went to Europe, it was in 1931. Um, then uh, he kind of dabbled in many different artistic fields, including architecture, painting, poetry, and music, before returning to America, and ultimately decided to study music. So he sent some of his compositions to Henry Cowell, who uh, suggested that he study with Schoenberg, who was teaching in California. So to prepare for this study, uh, John Cage moved to New York City in 1933, where he studied with Cowell and uh, Adolf Weiss, who was a former student of Schoenberg, and then he ultimately did study with Schoenberg uh, at USC, uh, UCLA, and privately. And one of my favorite things was that uh, he couldn't actually afford tuition to study with Schoenberg, and so Schoenberg asked him, will you dedicate your life to music? And John Cage said yes, so Schoenberg obliged to teach him for free. Um, and apparently Cage took that that vow very seriously, and even later in his life, when he didn't need to continue composing, he did, just because of that sort of promise he'd made. Um, so one of my favorite quotes from Cage, he said, after I had been studying with him for two years, Schoenberg said, in order to write music, you must have a feeling for harmony. I explained to him that I had no feeling for harmony. He then said that I would always encounter an obstacle, that it would be as though I came to a wall through which I could not pass. I said, in that case, I would devote my life to beating my head against that wall. <laughs> wow, that's great. Really? Yeah, that's a cool quote. Uh, so, yeah, he, he kind of, he said he rebelled against Schoenberg's ideas, but not against Schoenberg. Um, he didn't disavow his teacher or anything like that, but he obviously wanted to go a different direction. Um, and many years later, Schoenberg actually said of Cage, he was not a composer, but an inventor of genius. Um, so I thought that was a pretty cool little quote mm -hmm. from Schoenberg about him. Um, so kind of, I'm going to skip through my notes a little bit here so we can get Ed talking more about John Cage. 
Um, but in 1930, uh, in the late 1930s, um, he and his wife moved to uh, Hollywood, and Cage was working as a dance accompanist, much like Ed. Um, and then he also kind of started composing music for dance, um, which actually, like the, the constructions that we know of, uh, were written for dance. Um, and then it was around that time, too, that he met uh, Lou Harrison, who obviously, as far as Cowell Cage Harrison, it's that school of early American composers. Um, around 1940, he left and moved to Seattle with his wife, and uh, he taught for a couple of years at Cornish College of the Arts, where he organized a percussion ensemble that toured the West Coast and brought Cage kind of his first notoriety. He also, at this point, met Merce Cunningham, uh, who would become his kind of partner in life and artistic collaborator for many, many years to come after that. Um, after that, he moved to Chicago and then New York City. Um, while in New York, he encountered many kind of giants of art, including Max Ernst, sorry, Max Ernst, Gip Mondrian, and Jackson Pollock. Um, it was at this point that he kind of started to have some financial and personal difficulties in his life, um, and he didn't lose his percussion instruments, but he kind of lost access to them, lost space to rehearse them. So it was at this point that he started writing for prepared piano, um, and he also began studying Zen Buddhism. Um, and then one of my other favorite kind of anecdotes from this is that in 1950, uh, he attended a New York Philharmonic concert, uh, and it was uh, the first piece on the program was Anton Webern's Symphony Opus 21, followed by a Rachmaninoff work. And Cage said he was so overwhelmed by the Webern performance that he actually left. He did stay for the rest of the concert. And uh, he met at that point Morton Feldman, who also felt the same way. He was just so moved by this performance that he left. <laughs> um, so they kind of associated themselves artistically and created what, what's kind of been called the New York School of Composers with Morton Feldman, Earl Brown, David Tudor, and Christian Wolfe. Um, Wolf being the person that later provided Cage with a copy of I Ching, which is the uh, Chinese book of trance, which is kind of where I'm leaving off today with the history. But I just wanted to kind of say some of my favorite uh, Cage percussion works are the constructions, particularly the third construction, um, which I think is probably the most performed one. Uh, double music, which uh, Cage composed with Lou Harrison, where they basically made up a set of rules for composition, both went their separate ways, composed two parts each, and then assembled them together into one piece. Um, and Bill Mersch said there's kind of a rumor that uh, the first performance of double music, they hadn't actually rehearsed Cage's parts with, Cal uh, with um, Harris's parts, but it's not really certain if that's true or not. Huh. Um, living room music, which has a, a vocal movement where everyone's kind of reading a little poem and rhythm, which is kind of neat, I think. And then uh, one of my favorite Cage performances, if you go on YouTube, you can find this, is of this piece, Water Walk, which is for a bunch of instruments, including some say, water-themed instruments, like a bathtub or a soda, mm. uh, what do call it? soda pump thing. Seltzer uh, water. Seltzer water, yeah. Um, and he performed it on this uh, 1960s game show, actually, called I've Got a Secret. Um, and the, the kind of way the show worked was that they would have a panel of people that were asking the mystery guest questions to figure out what their secret was or something like that. And the composer thought it was so odd. Cage's stuff was just so odd. He said, you know, we're, the host of the show thought it was so odd. He said, we're going to cancel what we regularly do. I just want all of you to see what this guy, John Cage, does. Um, and so he kind of asked John Cage a few questions about it. He says, do you consider what you do to be music in the same vein as Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, and all the greats before you? And Cage says, well, yes, I do. And the composer says, well, this is so odd and so strange and out there that some people might not understand it and might actually laugh at your art form. Does it offend you when people laugh at your music? And Cage said, well, I'd rather have him laugh than cry. <laughs> Which is always kind of like a little anecdote I say before I perform, you know, aphasia or some super contemporary piece of music. Um, and I, I think it was actually someone commented on something on your Facebook about this uh, and said that Cage had spent his entire life basically rebelling against the uh, conventions of, you know, music. Um, but was never bitter, and was always very sweet about it, was never offended if anyone didn't like his thing, or, exactly. and it, it, it got people to think, which I think is as much of his goal as it was to create 
the art itself. Right, exactly. That, that post is like, I, I did a, a happy birthday to John Cage because his birthday was on September 5th, just recently. So on Facebook, I did a little song, uh, basically, loosely based off the of 4 minutes and 33 seconds. It's a, a video from my iPad. I open up the keyboard and then there's screws and stuff on the uh, on the keyboard, a la, you know, prepare piano, and I just dropped them. And then I, and I mimicked playing Happy Birthday, you know, fingering, but not making any sounds. But I was, I was making Happy Birthday in F, the key of F, the greatest key of F. And uh, that's my Happy Birthday song. Nice. Yeah. 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 I'm sure you would have loved it. I'm sure I've done it. Great. Well, hey, way to go, Ben. That's excellent. And yeah, we look forward to, to part two. I think we're pretty close to wrapping, but um, let's... Let's one try. other thing I want to hear Ed talk about about working with Stuart. Oh, Stuart Copeland, another little fellow, another little hero of my life that came into my life. It's so amazing. But um, the DSO uh, wanted to commission a piece for my group, the drum. It's not my group, but they share this group together called the drum. They, so they wanted to commission a piece for a concerto for world music group, and so we went there a couple of. Uh, Composers, but we ended up hiring Stuart Copeland, who was actually on the road with the, the police during this time. This is like two, 2009, 2010. And so he definitely agreed to do this. And so he, we kind of collaborated on his world music composition. And we, and we did a world premiere uh, with the DSO in 2011. And we performed it with the Cleveland Orchestra and also for um, the San Antonio. This last Pacific, we were playing at the same uh-huh. time Pacific was going on. And Stuart was just a fantastic guy to work with. I mean, he knew that the main goal was that we just wanted all of our all of our instruments on the stage. Okay, write <laughs> something like that that lets us all of our instruments on the stage. But um, he was more than happy to do that. He's he's been a great guy. He's just been a good friend all this time. Just to do anything for us. I, I have to say that one of my real inspirations as a young person at PASIC was a the drum performance. Oh my God. Yeah, it was really, really inspirational to me. You know, there's a, there's a couple that stick out for you always, and that was, that was definitely one. It must have been PASIC 2000, maybe 2000. Was that in Dallas? Was that the one in Dallas? I don't remember. Um, I was in... We've done two. We did one in Dallas and one in Austin, as far as by ourselves. I would. I want to say Dallas because I feel like I didn't go, had never been to Austin until I was. That was like 1999, I think it was, or 2000, right? One of those, uh, yeah. That was a special performance for me because uh, we also we played Gander while young. Ron and I played Gander, and mm-hmm. and there's you know there's a thousand people in the place, but we were playing for this back row of some of these ball-headed men, the, the members of Nexus. You know, yeah. back there, those guys. You know, Bob and all the guys are dear friends of mine now. You know, mm-hmm. but. Man, we were playing for them, man, and just because it was our first time to play at Pacific, and they were, they were very receptive. Of you. So I'm glad you were at that performance. That means a lot to me, Tracy. Thank you. Oh yeah, sure, sure. No, well, yeah, I owe you a thanks. Was, yeah, really, really inspirational. Um, well, I think we could just try to get one of these Facebook questions in, and I think we've. And again, thanks so much. We have questions that are going answered as as usual. But uh, thanks so much, you guys, for continuing to ask them. Uh, Paul Millette, Bailey O'Donnell, hi Bailey, and Brian Bloom, hey Brian, and uh, Ted Jackson, I think has a good one that we could end on, and it is, what is the most important thing you want your students to know by the time they graduate? That's a strong one. (laughs) You know what, I really want a student leaving my presence, I I want them to know that their education, once they leave, now their education really begins. That I want them to be self-sufficient and being able to, to, first of all, ask questions, and then and then find the means to answer the questions or whatever they're looking for, and to be so inquisitive that they they search places they never thought they would search for for inspiration, and then and, and to find their true passion. I want them. Is that, is that an answer? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's very important for me to. I want them to be self-sufficient that the education is just now beginning, now that you're leaving school, because that's where the, uh, the real answers are. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's great. That's that's really beautiful, Ed. Thanks so much. Awesome. And you guys, will we'll see you next time on 
episode 62. I hope the new format's working out. It's going to be like this from now on, so uh, hopefully this worked out and there weren't any goofy snafus along the way. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll have Laurel back with us. She just came, uh, is actually coming home tonight uh, off of a, a piano marimba tour through Tennessee and things. And happy birthday, Laurel. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, Laurel turned, uh, oh, I won't say that. Laurel had a birthday yesterday. Yeah. Oh, it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, Ed, Ed, it's great to chat with you finally, man. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. It's really, really great. Let's do it again. Yeah, yeah abs- absolutely. Absolutely. And put Ben to work on those things we talk about. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Okay, good night, everybody. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you.